the goal of the seven steps was academic fluency. And the concept there is kids reading and then talking and writing from multiple perspectives. So they would read academic texts and then be able to speak and write about that from multiple points of view. That was, that's the end goal of seven steps. And QSSA is, I would call it a core structure because it's the thing that you want to, with the talking part, as far as the conversation goes, it's our core structures. And there's lots of others in there like T-Chart, Pair Defend, and Expert Novice, and other structures that we have in there. But this is sort of the ground floor because a lot of the other ones build on that. But it's, it's, it's very adaptable and flexible. But I would say it's a core structure to building academic fluency because it's the most basic conversation structure that's fully inclusive. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Welcome back to Highest Aspirations and our first complete episode of Season 3. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How might we create and nurture a classroom and school culture that encourages respectful conversations where everyone has a chance to participate? What are some practical ways to increase quality conversations with English learners? What is QSSA and how might it help engage all students in high-quality academic conversations? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with John Seidlitz, founder and CEO of Seidlitz Education. Seidlitz Education's mission is to support school districts and teachers with increasing academic achievement for English language learners. They provide research-based consultations, trainings, coaching, and products with innovative educational tools that focus on ways to help give students the gift of academic language. They are always looking for user-friendly ways to help teachers give students rich background knowledge and the ability to communicate in academic settings. John Seidlitz is an independent educational consultant and the author of many publications including Sheltered Instruction Plus, A Guide for Texas Teachers of English Learners, Navigating the ELPS, Using the New Standards to Improve Instruction for English Learners. He's also a contributing author for the PSYOP Model for Teaching History and Social Studies for English Learners. He's the co-author of numerous other publications, including The Seven Steps to Developing a Language-Rich Interactive Classroom, and he's also been a guest lecturer for many regional and national language development conferences. He taught social studies in ESL, served as a secondary ESL program coordinator, and held the position of educational specialist at ESC Region 20 in San Antonio, Texas. In 2005, John Seidlitz founded Seidlitz Education, which is dedicated to the mission of giving kids the gift of academic language. A couple of reminders before we get started with our conversation with John. Be sure to subscribe to Highest Aspirations on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Also, please consider leaving us a rating and review on iTunes to let everyone know how we're doing. This will help us get the word out and help bring in more great guests. Also, we love to crowdsource from our growing community. If you have an idea for a topic or a guest for an upcoming episode, please feel free to email me directly. My email address is stevens at elevationeducation.com. That's S-T-E-V-E-N-S at elevationeducation.com. And don't forget that Elevation has two L's. As always, you can find more great free resources, including our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, curated news articles, blog posts, and lots more at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. You can also join the community there to get a weekly email with fresh content you can use and share with others. As always, we thank you for listening to Highest Aspirations. Here's our conversation with John Seidlitz. John Seidlitz, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you, Steve. Good to be here. Yeah, it's been a long time coming. I'm glad to finally sit down and speak with you uh, as we kick off our third season of the podcast. So I want to kind of set the stage a little bit before we get into talking specifically about what we're going to get into today, which is QSSA. And I'm kind of putting my, my Spanish teacher hat on, my language teacher hat. We're going to be talking about 
um, you know, having structured classroom conversations. But I want to talk about the idea of establishing a classroom culture. So like as a teacher, for me, until you really had an environment that was really conducive to speaking, it was hard to kind of implement any kind of speaking activity. So I guess I'd like to start by asking you, what kind of classroom culture needs to be in place to put something like this together successfully? Well, I think for, when I think about classroom culture, the first thing I think is, do I have a welcoming classroom where everybody feels uh, that they can talk and not be made fun of, where they can feel uh, welcomed, that uh, where who they are as people. One of the things that I think of when I, when I start teaching, I try as early as I can to provide an opportunity for kids to tell some of their stories, to tell me about who they are as people, not just what they like and don't like, but a little bit about some interesting things that have happened to them. Because if I, as a teacher, can start looking at all 120, 112 kids that I have, not as problems to be solved, but as stories to be shared, uh, it sounds kind of corny, but mysteries to be treasured. Uh, when, when I get that attitude and I'm open to that, it can be contagious with the kids. And they can start to see, oh, wow, I've got different people from different places with different perspectives, but this isn't a problem to be solved. This is cool. This is a great thing to be in here. And it doesn't happen right away on the first day of school. They have to, to see that I continually listen to them and kind of pay attention. And then I provide structures for them to uh, listen to each other and hear each other's stories in a respectful way. And it didn't matter what I was teaching. I taught social studies and I also taught ESL and I taught at middle and, and the high school level. And whether it's government or U.S. history or whatever the case may be, I still had to take time for kids to be who they are and feel comfortable with who they are. Then when we shift to an academic topic, they're less afraid to jump into the conversation and share what may be a viewpoint that not everybody in the class has. Um, I was always most proud when uh, students would share a viewpoint that maybe wasn't what everybody else had in a social yeah. studies class and, or were willing to challenge me on something when, when I would uh, just be talking about trying to understand an author's position. And like, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying this. I'd be like, yes, that's when you'd, you'd feel like, okay, they're comfortable uh, disagreeing with me and with each other and feel that they're in an environment where they're accepted uh, to do that and, and not going to be made fun of. Yeah, that's great. And, and where their assets, I mean, you know, there's that people always talk about taking an asset based mindset, especially towards English learners. And I think you're, you're really um, putting a context onto that. And I also like it how you talked about, you know, it's almost like an investment. It's a really very human centric investment in getting to know who students are before you, as you said, kind of shift over to something academic. I think, you know, a lot of times teachers are so um, pressured and understandably so to get to get to their content that that time to getting to know students having them tell their stories um, sometimes is not an investment that we make so I think really really good advice there that's going to set us up for our conversation about um, about speaking so for those wondering what uh, Q triple SA is um, I'd love it if you could provide kind of a brief definition of what it is and we're gonna go through the all every step but if you could provide a brief definition and maybe if it's possible, and maybe it's not, but I'd love to hear a kind of a quick example of how it's used in content, and then we'll go step by step and walk folks through it. Sure. So QSSA is a conversation strategy. It's not a questioning strategy per se. It includes a question, but it is a structure for having kids participate in academic conversation. Uh, so the different elements of QSSA are question, signal, stem share and assess. So I just briefly, you ask a question and then you provide a response signal and we prefer it to be a total response signal where I'm gonna make sure every single student is ready to respond to the question. And then we provide a sentence starter that can be a scaffold for students to use if they, if they kind of need some language to help them get started. And then there's a structured opportunity to share in either pairs or threes or fours or maybe even fives, but a structured opportunity for small group sharing orally. And then finally, there's assess. And the assess part is either randomizing response, uh, rotating the responses, or sometimes kids writing a reflection. So um, I think the easiest way to do it, to understand it, is to just give an example. This is a, like a real one that I might use in a social studies class. Great. Uh, 
first you build background. You, you make sure they have background, and I can talk more about that later, but you, you only do this about stuff they have background. Then I might ask, okay, do you think the decision to drop the atomic bomb was morally justifiable? Then I'd say, okay, put, everybody put your fists on your chin. This is the thinker's chin. And so all the kids will put their fists on their chin. And I'm going to wait until everybody's got their fists on their chin. I say, okay, I know it's kind of weird. Just put your fists on your chin. Okay, now you're thinking. Take your time. You don't have to rush. Just think. Think for a minute. Okay, as soon as you finish thinking and you have a response to this, do you think the decision from the atomic bomb was morally justifiable? You can take your fist off your chin. So everybody can then take their fist off their chin. And then once I see, if I see some kids struggling, I might say, okay, if you're not sure, but you can justify why you're not sure, like, I think it may have been justifiable, but I'm also not sure because then you could take your fist off your chin. Okay, and then I'll provide them a sentence starter. I think the decision to drop the atomic bombs was morally justifiable because, and then I can have them share with each other in small groups. Uh, and then I like to select one person from the group who's gonna, for the, for, who's gonna, for the, that would get you up through question, signal, stem, and then the, the share part, they're gonna talk to one another. To assess, I wanna know what they thought in the group. So either they could kind of summarize their discussion, or I could have one person from the group kind of stand up and, and share the, the thoughts of the group. Um, another thing you can do, instead of a thinker's chin, you might have them uh, rank their agreement on the of the, for the decision on a scale of say one to five, where they could mm -hmm. show where they were on, on, on in agreement or disagreement, um, uh, and I, I, that, that sometimes helps if they're struggling with uh, the different directions. Uh, usually, in my uh, when I uh, taught social studies, an early one that uh, when I was teaching American history uh, would do with uh, just the decision to colonize, the decision to leave. Would you have left to 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 come to? the Americas, if you were a Spanish colonist or an English colonist or the Native Americans, how would you have responded? I'm sticking with social studies examples here because that was my background in teaching, but just to give you a feel for, for what, it, what it would look like in a, in a classroom, you can kind of see the way it might look. Sure. Yeah. And I can see multiple approaches, as you mentioned, to kind of um, how you go about you know, using those, uh, those signals, whether it's your, you know, your, your hand on your chin to think, or whether you're using a, a set of numbers. And obviously those are going to be, um, applicable in different situations differently. Um, and I think that that's kind of gives teachers a little bit of agency, uh, to go about using this in different ways. So let's, let's dive into it a little bit. I think you just provide us a really great example with that. Uh, if, if dropping the atomic bomb was morally justifiable, you also used one that is obviously, um, you know, a, a pretty, uh, a pretty difficult issue to, to talk about for many, um, and giving the structure allows them to really, to really get into it. So, I, I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of teachers, you know, what we face in encouraging speaking, no matter whether the student is sort of a native English speaker or an English learner, is that people struggle with that academic language, kind of taking down those effective filters. I mean, that's, that's one of the things that I experience quite a bit as a Spanish teacher. I know others, um, others experience it in science classes and in math classes, whatever kind of academic language you need to use. Students oftentimes just want to have the right answer. Um, so my question is, and I think you kind of just answered it, and I have a feeling of where you're going to go here, but I'd love for you to explain a little bit further on how can posing a good question, which is the Q in QSSSA, begin to remove those filters or at least make them a little bit more manageable for students? Well, uh, I think there are when we ask a question to start a conversation, I sometimes will brainstorm with teachers when I work with teachers and ask what kinds of questions start conversations and what kinds of questions stop conversations. Yeah, that's great. And, so, and then we'll brainstorm stuff and I let the teachers just list a bunch of stuff. And uh, I think two things really come up frequently when we, when we talk about this. The first one is they need to be accessible, which means you're not going to be able to ask a question that every single person in the class does not have access to. I may have to fight like a tiger to get them access to the question, or maybe just something that they already have access to. Let me give you some examples. Like I could put a, a picture up of an, an image and say, uh, what do you, and it could be a graph or it could be a chart or it could be a quote or something like that. And just say, uh, what's something you notice about this image? Uh, okay. Everybody, uh, everybody raise your right hand. Put your hand down when you can tell me something you notice that maybe intrigues you about the image. Okay, what's one thing I noticed? Go ahead and share with your neighbor. One thing I noticed was, and they could share with their neighbor, and then I could maybe randomly select or say, okay, let me have the number one stand up if we're 
doing a Kagan strategy, like number heads together, so mm-hmm. two stand up or threes, now them share. Now, the point about the question was, what I notice, I don't need to have a tremendous amount of expressive ability in English to notice something about a drawing or to notice something about, now someone may notice something very deep, like if it's a, uh, there may be some kid who notices a certain characteristic of the angles or some embedded images if it's a complex image. If it's a quote, they may remind them of some other things that they've seen, but it's an open-ended question. As long as the image or the quote is thought-provoking or engaging, they're, they're going to jump into that conversation. But if I'm going to do something like uh, uh, the, uh, the question we had there, uh, you'll want to try to build some, some background. If I'm going to ask a question about uh, if you were uh, Montezuma, how would you have responded to Cortez during the conquest? Would you have welcomed him? Would you have done this? And why? What would you have done? And so we're going to have a little conversation. I have to make sure they know about Montezuma. They know about Cortez. They understand the storyline. They've got access to that. If I'm asking questions about to brainstorm solutions to solving a math problem or how would you deal with this environmental issue, whatever the question is, it has to be accessible. If, they, if everybody doesn't have access, they're not going to have a good conversation. And I, I could say as a teacher, this is where I fell down the most when I was trying to uh, structure conversations early on was I would ask questions and only the kids that had access to it because either they had been in American schools their whole life or they just had experiences with what we were talking about. Um, I remember, Steve, let me share an anecdote with you. I, I was just in a, I was in a foreign language class. That's your, your heart is Spanish. And I was a Spanish teacher. Mm-hmm. And they were asking questions of the vocabulary in the, in the unit they were doing was about travel in the airport. And there were kids in the class who had traveled internationally and there were kids who had never been out of the town that they Oh, had. John, you're about to explain something that I've done myself. Please, I know exactly where you're going. Go you ahead. Know, I'm watching these kids participate and I'm, I'm looking at the kids and I'm thinking, and so I, I engage in a one-on-one with a kid and I'm like, the teacher is thinking they're not participating because they don't understand the vocabulary, but they didn't understand about the baggage check, the, claim, the, the claims, customs, all yep. this. They didn't understand that stuff it wasn't the language that was the issue it was accessibility to the content sure and so uh i think it, social studies guilty as charged you know if we're uh making sure and we can do that lots of ways we can provide them some outside reading you could provide a native language resource before class starts you could uh just watch a video in the in, in classroom and then have small conversations about the video uh even watching a video of someone going through an airport yeah, <laughs> even yeah. in english beforehand but they they didn't understand what all this stuff was in the vocabulary so to participate in a conversation in spanish about it was just right. not gonna happen. so what were you going to say that happened with you steve oh it's same i mean i did I, you know i did the same thing i mean i was the, the classic unit on the airport and travel international travel i taught in two very different school districts one probably with a lot of students who had never set foot in an airport and another probably where almost everyone had. But regardless, you know, I had students with different experiences. And you get to that airport unit that's coming, or the travel unit that's coming up every time. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether you're saying la aduana or customs, they don't understand what it is, you know? And so I found myself, getting back to your conversation, you're talking about, you got to build background. It's got to be accessible to everyone. And building background helps to make it be accessible to everyone. And it has to be thought-provoking or engaging. If it's missing one of those elements, you know, that, that, that question is just gone. And I, I remember being, you know, a very young teacher, um, not really learning, I feel like my prep, I'm not blaming anybody, was on me as well, but like about how you needed to just make it accessible for everyone and not sort of come to um, these conclusions that, okay, everybody's been in an airport or everybody has experienced this kind of dining. So like, let's, 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 when we get into the food unit and the airport unit, you know, let's just, let's just pose a question. Um, so I think, you know, getting back to QSSSA, this this idea of, of getting a question that's accessible and you giving the example of the airport that at least I know every foreign language teacher can probably relate to um, and others as well, I think is just really, really important. You just basically told, I mean, I knew you were going to go down that road and tell that story and it kind of made me feel <laughs> a little bit like a little bit of a flashback of those students who I probably didn't serve as well as later students who, who you know, for, for whom I kind of knew uh, how, how to go about approaching that kind of unit. It's, it's always an awkward experience meeting students I taught my first year, t- two years teaching. <laughs> what do they remember exactly? So, uh, yeah, so it's, I think those two things, if it's accessible and it's thought-provoking, and if I see uh, kids kind of sitting up and looking and paying attention, uh, 
if they're making eye contact, if they're looking at the image or they're looking at the quote or I see them looking at the question or they're jumping in, then I know I've, I've hit those two. It takes some practice though. It does. We've got to get to know our kids. I think sometimes a little uh, response signal can help to just, uh, uh, the signal helps a lot with that actually, I think. Yeah, and that's, and that's where I want to go now. Um, you know, we just talked about the question. I think we have a good idea of how to form a good question. We have a great example. Um, and that first S stands for what you just said, signal. And I, I love it that it's included as sort of part of the structure here. Because I think at first glance, it can seem very simple. And some may say, oh, this is something that I do, you know, all the time as part of my practice. But my own experience and my experience then later mentoring and observing teachers tells me otherwise, that this is something that is frequently missed. So uh, first, I'm curious if that's also your uh, perception. And then second, I'd love if you could explain why you think it is such an important step. You've gotten into a little bit, but if you could expand a little more, that'd be great. Well, I, you know, I'm going to share with you something that I was meeting with uh, uh, Stephen Fleener recently, the author of teaching, the co-author of Teaching Science to English Language Learners. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, because he's really good and effective at coaching QSSA with teachers. And I just asked him, what do you think is the most essential one of the QSSSA? And he just popped out really fast with the signal. And I said, why do you think the signal? And he said, I think it's the signal, John, because the signal where is where I communicate with the students I'm, that I, I'm teaching. I will wait for you. And he said, yeah. you know, I taught in, a, in uh, Edgewood, San Antonio, a low-income district where there were a lot of kids very high poverty district and they had become accustomed to teaching to the top quarter, the top third. And he was teaching high schools, uh, sophomores and juniors, uh, biology and chemistry and was just mostly sophomores and juniors. But he was, uh, just saying that, uh, communicating them, I will wait for you. I'm not going on without you. And I want to know what you know. It's a way of telling the students I'm invested in you and I care. And, uh, that really touched me because I remember when I first started using response signals, teaching first ESL, I experimented with it. And then finally in my social studies classes, I was like using them. And really it was a way for me to gauge whether or not I'm providing comprehensible input. And I know we have like some, uh, the, just the comprehensible input. Am I, am I, is my, is what I'm saying comprehensible to the kids? Do they understand this question? Is, are, do they know where I'm coming from? And so without me having them say, okay, on a scale of one to five, uh, show me how you disagree or agree or uh, uh, everybody raise your right hand, put your hand down when you can finish this sentence or any of those ones we do whiteboards or those things uh, without doing that. I don't know. I don't know if my input's comprehensible or not because the truth is, and I, you probably know this too as a, as a, as a Spanish language learner that uh, when I'm in a, in, in, a, in a foreign language context, I can look at someone and make eye contact and nod and not know what they're saying. Yeah, I was a professional and, at that while I was learning I, Spanish in Spain. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you get used to it because you don't want to feel awkward. I know. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be vulnerable, yeah. Exact same experience learning Spanish was I would, I would uh, nod and I, I'm looking polite and I, <laughs> but I, I don't understand and my students are doing that too but if it, with these little chunks and these breaks for people to, uh, to say, hey, uh, are you with me? Are you, are you with me? Do you understand? Um, it just helps me to know that that uh, the students to know that I'm waiting for them and that that, that I'm I'm here for you. It, it it has to be a part of the structure because without it we don't get inclusion. Um, I had a, a a friend who used to say it this way that without a system, inclusion is an illusion, and we're tricking ourselves. We fool ourselves that we're including everybody because we ask a great question. And I, I did this the other day. I, I had a, a I. I I was telling stories and stuff while I was doing a staff development, uh, Steve, and I talked for an hour and I thought I was amazingly engaging and I had some great eye contact with some of the teachers and I told some great stories. So at the end of the day, they said, I, some of the comments were great workshop, but the first hour kind of dragged. And I was like, oh my gosh, wow. I, I didn't, and I thought there were no response signals. I didn't break up the instruction. And that's for adults yeah. with master's degrees. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, you have to constantly check yourself. And wh- while what we do in this podcast and, and, and I think a lot of the collaboration work that we do, John, is, is all about English learners. But realistically, these are good strategies for everyone, which is very commonly the case. And I often say during an episode, and I'll say it again, I don't get through one of these podcast episodes without saying that good instruction for English learners is good instruction for everyone. So I've said it again, and that's fine. But I mean, you know, the idea of I will wait for you is 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 hugely important and i love it that you just quoted um 
uh, Stephen there because that's key, Stephen Fleener. And then the the other thing that I think is important here and probably worth mentioning is, you know, I, I often start to think about, well, what about the students who are sort of fully engaged and want to move ahead quickly? Those students honestly benefit as well from a time to just kind of sit and process. And yeah. in the course of a day where they're unfortunately taking in so much information and don't have the time to reflect, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to just stop and say, all right, let's take a second and just see where we all are. No matter if we're learning English or if we're native English speakers, or if we understand the material, or if we don't, it just gives everybody a chance to kind of take a step back and, and, and reflect. Yeah. I, I think one thing that uh, is important is to realize in our classrooms, we're trying to move everyone forward, not just the bottom quarter uh, in that it's, we have kids who are fluent in English or academically advanced, who may be gifted in our in, in our classrooms, uh, as well as some gifted English learners who might not be fluent in English. But we have to move. We have to provide an opportunity for all of those kids to grow. Mm-hmm. And by asking an accessible, thought-provoking question, and then providing a, a, a time for someone to think. I, I've noticed, Steve, when I ask a really good question, I remember the the uh, uh, when we were doing uh, Thoreau, the civil disobedience. Oh yeah. And I, I asked a question, and the student I had is an eighth grader, and we were reading it in history. Not it wasn't language arts; it was a history class. And uh, I remember her just waiting and waiting and waiting, and would not give me a signal. And I said, "Are you still thinking?" She said, "Yes, I'm thinking." And I said, "Are you still thinking?" And she said, "Yes, I'm thinking." And then she finally said, "Is it okay if I just think about this?" And and, and I, I really don't know what I'm. I, I don't know how I feel about this. This is really hard for me. I said, "Sure, but you, as long as you can explain to your group why it's hard for you." But I thought. Wow, you know, that response signal, this is a student who was very, very advanced, but she recognized the complexity of the issue. My STEM was overly simplistic. I agree with the concept of civil disobedience because I disagree. She's like, I can't say that. What's the context? You know, yeah. like, she was like, it's, I, that STEM is just, no, I can't respond to that with yes or no. I'm sorry, Mr. Silence. It's not going to work. But it's like, uh, I wasn't just providing something for the student who's struggling with English to have access, but providing an opportunity for kids who really need that time to think through a deep answer to reflect and, uh, and, and process. Yeah, and I don't think anyone, certainly not the educators among us, I imagine social studies educators, first and foremost, would argue that uh, that thinking too much about Thoreau and civil disobedience is, is the wrong thing to do. That was my... Uh, that was my senior quote, by the way, to affect the quality of the day. That is the highest of the arts. And it's one of the things that I look back on and I could say, one of the only things that I could say, you know what? That still rings true today. I picked a good one. That <laughs> is a good one. That's a great one. All right. So you just mentioned, um, you just mentioned the, the next S, which is STEM. Um, and I think that like most of us are aware of, uh, those of us teaching language are, are, are aware of the power of sentence stems. Um, is the primary goal here to provide students with an opportunity to work on academic language is question number one. And, and two, what does the research in your experience tell you about the effectiveness in getting English learners over the hump um, by using STEMs uh, to, to help them with formal language? Well, I, I think the, the formal language part and the structures of language and part about, for example, using uh, having a language objective every day that most of us learned uh, from PSYOP years ago, uh, it talks about uh, being specific in the language provides opportunities for a comprehensible exposure to ELs and a low stress opportunity for output. I mean, just to be kind of technical about it. Uh, Jana Echeverria has a wonderful uh, blog post uh, from just, I think in April. um, And I believe the name of the blog post is teaching English learners. What does the research say? Yeah. And, uh, again, those of us familiar with the field are, are used to this, but I think it's worth reiterating, all teachers are language teachers. And uh, when we have students who are, are learning English, they learn by having comprehensible input with low stress opportunities for output. So a sentence stem provides for students, especially if they have a response signal, do you understand the stem? They're getting academic language, a comprehensible exposure, and then they have this chance to share where they're not having to worry about forming language and sentences. It's just like a little entry point. I, I do not believe in forced output, uh, Steve, you know, from our own background with language development. And sure. think of the stems are an invitation in, they're not a kick through the door. And kids 
they don't necessarily have to use them. If you, if you don't need it and you're able to really get your thoughts out without it. But for some kids who are learning English, they appreciate, oh, this is English I can understand and it provides an opportunity for a comprehensible exposure where they can develop language. They get a chance to sound intelligent when they're talking with their friends and sharing. They don't feel embarrassed to talk. And uh, they're able to jump in and do that. I, they, they, I think if we make them uh, kind of, if we're too rigid about uh, the STEM, uh, it depends on the context. Like, I mean, in a foreign language class or an early ESL class, I might be a little rigid just to kind of help the kids, especially when they're struggling with a new structure or something. Like, I wanted them to try to, to, to get used to it. There may be an opportunity when I'm going to really strongly encourage using that. But if a kid's excited about the topic, they want to just jump in and talk about it, and they, they, they just jump right in, then the STEM is a scaffold, but it's not a straitjacket. It's something that's there to provide them that entry point. So yes, is the main point academic language development. Um, and I think early on for me it was because my first place using them was in, in the ESL class. But when I'm teaching adults or fluent English speakers, the point to me becomes providing a structure for the conversation. People mm -hmm. often don't know what we're asking. I, I remember one time I was like asking, okay, I was with a group of people and we were talking about, uh, scaffolding for ELs. And I asked the question, so how is scaffolding for ELs similar to, to uh, supporting ELs, similar to supporting RGT students? What's some similarities there, some overlap? Um, I was making some connections because we have ELs who are GT and they were kind of, they had no idea what I was talking about. So, but when I restructured it and said, uh, and I said, one way academic conversation benefits ELs is, and one way academic conversation benefits our gifted students is. And then when we brought up the topic of, of academically gifted English learners, they could see, oh my gosh, by providing open conversation, I'm helping ELs with blah, blah, blah. But with that STEM and taking those two STEMs separately and putting the concepts together, everybody had access to it. Yeah. But when I asked the question without the STEM to these adult you know, English speakers with master's degrees, they were a little stumped until I got real specific. I need an example of how this conversation benefits ELs and an example of how it benefits our academically gifted students. And then I needed them to kind of, okay, now let's make some connections for our opportunities for our, our academically gifted English learners. So it's not about, it, it, and this is kind of obvious at this point, but this is not a water things down strategy at all. It's, a, it's really a providing entry points for everyone at every level of development to be lifted up. And I think the STEMs give us that opportunity. Yeah, that's great. And I think you gave two, uh, you said two things that I, I just want to highlight that I think are important. I think everything you said is, is really, is really key, but two, two things. One was that those STEMs provide students an opportunity to, to, th that need it, an opportunity to kind of get involved in the conversation, show sort of their friends and the social piece of it that, yeah, I can participate. That's great. But then the other piece of it, and I've seen this as well as a language teacher is providing a STEM and then having students not use it and not be too rigid about it. And, and the, the student may say to you, Hey, you know, Mr. Furnace, do I need to use this STEM? And I'll be like, no, absolutely not. If you feel like you can do it without it, go for it. And if they can achieve that and do that, that's a huge uplift. It's as much an uplift for them as it is for the students who are able to use the STEM to produce the language that they wouldn't have been able to produce before. Right, right. And I think that's where sometimes teachers who aren't used to using STEMs worry about watering down the content or sometimes I've had, uh, they worry that you're almost giving away the answer too much or that we're just overly structuring. And I think that is a temptation that we need to avoid. We need to let kids know that this is to support you. This is not, uh, this is not to limit you. Yeah. Okay, great. So I want to get to the third one, which for me um, may have been the most challenging for like, if I'm thinking about my students, um, you know, it was the most challenging for them. And it's probably because, um, you know, I, as I was going along with this kind of strategy, which by the way, I feel like I was using without really using it, I could have used this, this structure when I was actually teaching, but sharing can be really difficult. I mean, you know, it's really essential that the student talks at this point, um, preferably using whatever academic language was in the STEM or whatever, you know, you're trying to get into. Uh, the, the formal language that uh, that you're trying to uh, to teach them, but what are this? What are some of the ways that that a teacher can make sure that every student has the opportunity to speak, and that they have the appropriate supports um, to help them do it? Uh, well, I think the first thing about speaking is I need to model listening because uh, that, that may seem counterintuitive to start with listening, but 
kids have to believe that they're going to be listened to and in the classroom and that other kids are worth listening to. Uh, th- let me just give you an example. If I call on a student, if I early on, before I have the kids do a lot of sharing uh, in small groups, I'll try to do what I mentioned when we started the, 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 the podcast interview about uh, having kids share stories and having kids share some things about themselves. If I can model taking an interest, making eye contact, deeply listening, being curious, then I'm setting up an atmosphere of listening and curiosity initially. Mm -hmm. Uh, The kids will pick up on that. And then when we slide into academic topics uh, from some of that personal stuff that we kick off the year with, it, it really helps then because when they're talking about their opinions on academic things, like what do you notice in this image or what do you notice about this quote? And I'm calling on students, even if they say something that's like, Oh my gosh, they totally are not getting the meaning of this quote, the language just by being curious and listening and not shutting down. I'm modeling what the expectations and norms are in the classroom. And then the next step to me is to provide a really specific structures, especially early on safe, specific structures. So first I've got my signal and stem so I know everyone can participate. They've told me they're ready. Now when they talk to each other early on, I overly structure, even with uh, older students, like, okay, so you're in groups A, B, and C, some of you are just A, B. Raise your hand A's, raise your hand B's, raise your hand C's. Okay, A's. You're gonna start the conversation, but then we're gonna hear from the B's, and if you have a C, uh, you'll, you'll jump in after that. So it's very, okay, A's, raise your hand. All right, A's, go. And the next time B's, go. <laughs> the next time C's, I've just found that that concreteness of the structure, uh, it greatly, greatly benefits students uh, early on. I totally uh, agree. Sometimes, you know, once, once they kind of get the, get a, you, you know your own kids, but you can kind of say, okay, give a topic and not necessarily be quite so specific once the kids know they're going to be respected and everybody has a chance to share. But by listening to a student who's from a different social group, and, you know, high schools can be some of the most stratified environments on planet earth schools when they have to listen to that student and they they hear that student and because that student was going to go first and maybe that's that shy kid they've gone to school with for three or four years that they never really heard from all of a sudden that relationship changes uh the first year i really started doing a lot of structured conversations outside of just esl i i remember a student coming to me the end of the year and said i'm really going to miss this class he said why and he said because here, people that don't normally talk to me, they talk to me and treated me like I was normal. And uh, how great is that, by the way? I mean, like, that's what it's all about. I mean, you know, you, you've said, John, a couple times, and I sorry to interrupt, but this is a good time for me to bring this up. You've said a couple times now when I slide into academic topics, right? And like, you're ner- what you're doing, it, it just sort of as, as, a, as a human and as a teacher, I think what we need to do more of is engage in those kinds of activities that allow students to speak with one another, students who don't necessarily speak with one another, to be respected. And when someone walks out of your classroom saying something like that, boy, that must make, make you feel good. And, and, and they've also achieved what they need to achieve academically, I'm sure. Yeah, and you never, you never for those kinds of things that after I started doing that a lot in my classroom, I thought, oh my gosh, that's when I got my sense of mission that I need our whole school to be doing this. Our whole social department, our whole school, we've got to establish this for kids. Because what if he was getting that all day? If all day he was getting that. And I think that slides into another thing I wanted to talk. I keep using the word slide, but (laughs) (laughs) specific norms that respectful conversation, teaching phrases. I remember uh, uh, things like uh, from, uh, I think the model is called Chris. It was a model from years ago or even from the, from, from the sign up videos uh, from way back when the old ones, not the new ones they've got. They show the kids going, I respect your opinion, but uh, uh, and I, I also from Socratic dialogue, they teach those things, those different workshops, uh, yep. so not, not something original to me, but, but explicitly teaching phrases and modeling norms of that's an interesting idea, however, or let me see if I can summarize what you're saying before you jump in and give your own opinion, especially when it's a controversial topic. Uh, then there, the, it, when, it really helps the kids to jump in. I also found that it helped me, Steve, to model how students can show they don't understand and that it's okay. For example, I'm in my ESL class. Uh, I would model, now some would say, now some of you are a little bit more used to English, but we have Jorge here today, and you know, he's a newcomer. So Jorge might say something like, and, and like, uh, 
could I didn't understand that. Can you say that with simpler words? And I wouldn't necessarily, in an ESL class, I might point out Jorge specifically because we were comfortable with that. But in my social studies class, I just say, you have some people here who are learning English. Let's be honest about it and let them provide. People want to be helpful. Our kids want to, they, they like being helpful. And so if we model that, that you can say that, or can you say that a little bit, or would you mind repeating that? I didn't understand what you said. Or um, can you write that out? Because I'm trying to understand what you're saying. By showing that, and modeling that, it enabled our beginning and intermediate kids to feel like, okay, I can jump in and participate in this conversation too. I'm not lost here. And so uh, it's not just modeling disagreement, but it's also modeling I don't understand. Occasionally, Steve, this may have happened to you too, I think a student is disagreeing, or actually this happens in parenting too. I have a daughter who's about to graduate, so. <laughs> but she's not disagreeing, she just doesn't understand what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying? You, you, yeah. It's not, and so sometimes that happens with misunderstanding. It's misunderstanding, it's not really disagreement. And so giving them models uh, to do that, I think can be very helpful. Yeah, yep, for sure. And I, you know, I'm glad we're kind of getting into the, the idea here of establishing norms that are not only going to help students academically, but also help them as they kind of navigate the world. And I think, you know, we need that arguably now um, more than ever. So uh, getting into the A, we're almost at the end of the Q triple S A. Uh, we've talked about the first um, the first four. Now I want to get into the A, which stands for assessing, um, and that is the one that would likely cause some of the most stress for students. Um, if I'm if I'm understanding this all correctly, this is designed to be kind of a formative assessment, and they're going to have time to prepare and practice. But it can still be you know difficult if students are, are called out at random or if they they still don't sort of feel prepared, 100% ready to go after all of that structure. So could you walk us through that, um, that assess step and maybe provide some tips to minimize, you know, anxiety um, while also ensuring that accountability and, and allowing students to go through what we call that kind of productive struggle period? Sure. There are three ways that we do the formative assessment in this piece. Randomizing, rotating, or having students write. And uh, randomizing, calling, like with index cards or popsicle sticks or one of those apps like people, uh, a lot of the teachers use, uh, Class Dojo or something like that. They, they're going to randomly call on students. They could rotate around one stand-up, two stand-up, using one of the Spencer Kagan's cooperative learning strategies. Uh, they can do different way, things like that. Or having kids, okay, take out a little piece of paper, do a quick write, or write in a journal or something like that. Well, this will cause stress for kids. Um, I don't know if you've heard the term eustress, <laughs> good stress. It will not be eustress or good stress unless they do have some way to, re to, to feel safe. So I, I generally encourage teacher to have to post responses of what to say instead of I don't know. And to provide kids some things like, could you please repeat the question? Or can I talk to one of my partners? Or may I have some time to think? Or some different responses. That is posted in the classroom. I encourage the kids to use it anytime they can. And that's it. I also have another out, especially for my beginning kids, or sometimes kids are having some real emotional problems that we sometimes have, uh, where they could, uh, I used to, I went to high school in Japan, actually, and there was a, if you cross your arms in front of you to say no, and this is where I got this from, is a way of saying like us nodding our heads sideways in the United States, was uh, to say no. Uh, I would teach kids that say, okay, this is, if you lived in Japan, this would mean no. And so if you are just really overwhelmed because either you don't understand what I'm saying, or maybe it's just one of those days where something's going on, you just can't talk in front of people today. Mm -hmm. uh, you can do that. And I'll come talk to you privately. I've said, you'll always get a private conversation when you do that, but I'm never going to embarrass you. I'm not going to humiliate you. So my popsicle sticks or my index cards or my app is an invitation in to this great thing we're doing, which is having an, a conversation. And you're invited in, but I'm not gonna kick you through the door. I, 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 this is not about humiliating you. It's not about, let's see who's paying attention. Okay, Leo. It's, it's not an I gotcha. It's an invitation into this great thing that we're doing. And it's, it's inviting them to be a part of, I, I think of it as just this, uh, uh, class conversation is, is a great thing. It's, not, it's something that they wanna be a part of if I can create that accessibility and that good thought-provoking question. And I've never seen kids, honestly, Steve, they would use it for a little while. I never saw a kid use the no all year. Yeah, that was my next question, and I, I anticipated that answer. But, but if they did, then 
we'd cry. I would have crossed that bridge when I came to it. Maybe somebody's terribly, terribly vulnerable. And they of need, course, they need to talk to me privately all the time because that never happened with me. But if it did, I'm not afraid of that, of kids having like, there are kids that are needier than others, but I'm not going to stop inviting you because what we're doing in having this conversation is too important. And, and I, I will not stop inviting you um, with my signals and my little popsicle sticks. I'm going to keep inviting you. Um, and, and, and usually, it would, uh, typically it was just newcomers and that I would have the thing where they would, would do that. And I, I draw their name and I kind of make eye contact with them before I call them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And just kind of look at him before I'd even say the name of the student. I was, uh, I mean, this girl, Belinda, and I was just like, I kind of looked at her and she's like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And I was like, so I talked with her and I could say something like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to actually prepare a question for you. Can you practice this tonight? And I'll call on you tomorrow. And she's like, okay. And so yeah, but by doing that, by like having that just a moment of eye contact with someone and you know what they're thinking, they know what you're thinking that you have a relationship with that person. You've created a relationship and a culture that it's okay. And that I'm going to, and I think that's very powerful what you said. It's an invitation in, and I'm going, I'm not going to stop inviting you. And unfortunately, I don't, I don't think that that's the case with all classrooms and all teacher. I mean, imagine if it were, which is why we're having this conversation. Right, right. And I think a lot of, te most of us want to do it, but I honestly- Oh, Steve, totally I, agree, yeah. I couldn't yeah. do it until I had the structure. Yeah. I, I really needed a structure. And once I got structures in place, then I was like, phew, I could do it. Great. All right. So, so I guess speaking of structure and a larger structure, um, you know, this QSSA is a, is part of um, of a successful language rich classroom. I'm curious as to how it fits into the larger picture, particularly as it applies to to your very popular um, seven steps to a language rich interactive classroom book. How does it fit in with everything else? Is it is it something that can be used kind of um, on some days while other structures should be used on other days. And I know it's going to be impossible to talk about the whole book right now, but I wanted to kind of zoom well, out a little bit. The goal of the seven steps was uh, academic fluency. And the concept there is kids reading and then talking and writing from multiple perspectives. So they would read academic texts and then be able to speak and write about that from multiple points of view. That was, that's the, the end goal of seven steps. And QSSA is I would call it a core structure because uh, it's the thing that you want to, with the talking part, as far as the conversation goes, it's our core structures. And there's lots of others in there like T-chart, pair, defend, and expert novice, and other structures that we have in there. But this is sort of the ground floor because a lot of the other ones build on that. And, and when you see the other structures that are in the book, they actually are grounded in QSSA. Uh, it's easier than I think uh, a T-chart pair defend. It's easier than an expert novice conversation. It's 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 a uh, a little more simple, but it's also something that I could do two or three of these in a class period. If I have two or three really good thought-provoking questions, they could be really short conversations, or they could be maybe ten-minute conversations. Uh, Pretty but, adaptable. But it's 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 very adaptable and flexible. But I would say it's a core structure to building academic fluency because it's the most basic conversation structure that's fully inclusive. Yep, great. And obviously, uh, I just mentioned that book, which is, which is a really popular one and a really good resource. But I want to ask you as we kind of wrap up our, our conversation, if there's a book or other resource that has influenced you, either personally or professionally, that you'd like to share with us. Um, I, I, I will, a couple of books. One, of course, I think that's been influential on all of us is the, the PSYOP, uh, Shelter Instruction Observation Protocol uh, by uh, Jana Echeverria and, and Debbie Short and uh, Mary Ellen Vogt. Um, it, it just it was a comprehensive model that taught me a lot of, uh, it just expanded my thinking about the comprehensive thingsness of things we can do to support English language learners. Uh, and the other one that I think has been really influential on me is, a, it's an old book. It's by a guy, I don't know if you've heard of Parker Palmer. You ever heard of Parker Palmer? He wrote a book years ago called The Courage to Teach. And he had this idea that in teaching, we are inviting kids. It's not so much just about teacher-centered or student-centered, but we and the students are both engaged in this great thing, which is this academic world, this academic conversation that reaches all the way back to the dawn of civilization and is moving forward into the future, that we're a part of something big in teaching. And it takes courage to reach out to kids who are broken, who are needy, who are struggling, who don't want to be there, and to 
almost entice them in to this. And he has great stories about teaching and stuff. But I, I read that about my second or third year teaching, and I got a vision of, of myself as doing something great that, uh, gosh, we get so picked on uh, sometimes in the education yeah. world. Yeah. And look what we're trying to do. It's amazing what we're trying to do. I mean, this little core idea of, of being created equal and having the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And here we are trying to do this for everybody. Uh, it, it's an amazing thing we're trying to do. But let's not pretend it's easy to do that in schools. It, it's hard. And we do have kids that are coming from really tough circumstances. And that's where I find like Carol Salva with uh, Boosting Achievement for Underschooled Students at oh. Animatis that uh, yep. the just it's so inspiring to to reach out to those kids and invite them in. And I think it's, for me, that book turned me from, it changed it from a job that I was trying to do well to a life that I was trying to live well. That, that this is what I'm doing with my life. I'm, I'm teaching and it's an amazing thing and it's an ancient and ever new thing and, it, and it's big and I need to have the courage to step up to the plate and do the best I can because it's too important what we're doing. What a great way to put it. I'm not going to try to summarize what you just said, but I would recommend people kind of uh, rewind for a second because that was, that was pretty powerful. Um, great. Well, last question for you, John, is um, how can people learn more about the work that you're doing at Sidelets Education and with anything else? I think the easiest way is our website and uh, is to go to www.sidelitseducation.com or if you Google Sidelets Education blog, uh, we have, we're writing, we also have guest bloggers also that are blogging with us, uh, frequently and on just a, a variety of topics. Yeah. And you and I have spoken about this. I mean, you're the, the blog, the, the recent blog posts in the last six months or so have been, they're always great, but I feel like you guys have ramped it up a little bit and there's some really great stuff in there and we feature a lot of it on our, on our newsletter. So we're appreciative to that really, really great content that you're putting up there. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been really fun talking with you. Thank you so much, John. Appreciate you coming on and keep up the good work. And uh, we will link to all of the resources that, uh, that, that you listed, including the books um, and some of the other things at the beginning on the uh, written version of the podcast episode. You can find that on elevationeducation.com slash EL community. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.